0: Welcome to the mysterious world of the Skylark Bell. Our story begins on the outskirts of a small town called Pocket, where Margaret Phaeton, better known as Magpie, must connect a series of unexplained events, psychic visions, and century-old folktales before the mysterious silence hanging over the abandoned farm at Meadow Lane spreads to the entire town. The Skylark Bell is a fiction podcast in serial format, with new chapters every Friday, and bonus episodes that recount real-life paranormal experiences. Find The Skylark Bell on all major platforms and at theskylarkbell.com. I'm Melissa Oliveri. Thank you for listening.
1: Do not attempt to adjust the settings on your device. The sounds you hear are not hallucinations. You have entered the mind of someone that has a taste for the macabre, the strange, the unusual, and the morbid. Don't be shy. Step inside, warm up your mug, and enjoy your visit into the world that is the Nightcap. Welcome my friends to the nightcap where nothing is taboo or wicked and the topics are always eerie and intriguing. As always, discussion of death, blood, and suffering is what you tune in for and rightfully so. It is never disappointing or boring. Don't worry, I'm not about to change gears and turn to the light side because the dark side is much more fun. There is, however, a a flip side to the murder coin that few take into account or bother exploring as collateral damage in the subject or subjects in reigns of terror and that is the families and offspring of the monsters we know today. I sense a bit of hesitation since you're probably thinking that these people are the exact opposite of their counterparts and lead boring lives. While you'd be correct in that assumption to a degree, the intriguing part is which ones choose to discuss the gruesome misdeeds of their relatives, and which ones remain silent and change their identities to distance themselves from a tainted past. This is where I come in to fill in the gaps. Get comfortable in your recliner by the fire and grip your cup of hot cocoa, creepy ones, and prepare yourself for the loved and neglected of human horrors. <laughs> Fred and Rosemary West are probably names some of you have heard if you grew up in the 70s and late 80s. And if you lived in the UK, you definitely heard of these monsters. Fred West brutally murdered his first wife as well as around 13 other people. His criminal career didn't start with that, however. Like a lot of prolific serial killers, they had a sordid past. In Fred's case... He was convicted of child molestation, deception, indecent assault, theft, and a myriad of petty crimes. Fred married Catherine Costello while she was pregnant with another man's baby. To provide an explanation for the mixed heritage child, they claimed she was adopted after a miscarriage. Fred was the sole breadwinner, with Catherine being the doting mother. It was reported that Fred kept the children behind bars in a bunk bed, only allowed out when he was at work. He also was cruel to his wife, beating on her, and having multiple affairs throughout their marriage, even fathering an illegitimate child. In revenge, Catherine had her own affair, which enraged Fred, resulting in multiple altercations between all parties involved. His first official victim was a boy he ran over in his delivery van, and it spiraled from there. His affairs led to another marriage after his first divorce, to Catherine soon turning to murder his second wife, While she was pregnant, Fred was arrested on numerous offenses, finally settling into doing odd jobs and courting teenagers. It was around this time that he started seeing his future wife, Rosemary. There aren't any real words to describe just how malicious and horrible these two were, but to give you an idea, they are labeled Britain's most evil parents. They tortured, violated, and murdered during their time together, and some victims remain unfound to this day. The many children Fred fathered have remained mostly silent about their individual times behind closed doors, but one in particular, Mae West, the sinister duo's youngest daughter, has spoken out on behalf of her siblings. May has described her time living with her parents as chilling, violent, and unpredictably cruel. When each of the West children reached the age of seven, they were assigned numerous daily chores to perform in the house. They were rarely allowed to socialize outside the household perimeters unless either of their parents were present and had to follow strict guidelines imposed by their parents with severe punishment, almost always physical, being the penalty for not conforming to the household rules. The children feared being the recipients of violence from their parents, the vast majority inflicted by Rose, occasionally by Fred. The violence was sometimes irrational, indiscreet, or just inflicted for Rose's gratification. She always took great care not to mark the children's faces or hands in these assaults. Heather and her younger brother Stephen, born in 1973, ran away from home. Both returned to the house on Cromwell Street after crashing at their friends and staying around with other relatives, and both were beaten when they were returned home. Between 1972 and 1992, the West children were admitted to the Accident and Emergency Department of local hospitals 31 times. The injuries were explained as accidents and never reported to the social services department. She recalled her mother slammed one of her siblings over the head with a mop bucket after she accidentally stepped in it yelling that he did that on purpose, calling him a worthless swine. May was not immune to her mother's fit of rages either. She described one incident where her mother couldn't find a knife she was using to cut meat and when it was finally retrieved, she turned on May, delivering scour marks until her ribcage was covered in light stab wounds. Her siblings stood in horror, sobbing as May screamed and yelled for her mother to stop. The overall disgust and unspeakable acts get worse. Much, much worse. Because May was sexually assaulted and abused by her schizophrenic father, she continued that cycle on her daughters, even including Fred in her acts. Eight-year-old Anna Marie was led to the basement by her mother, where she was gagged and strapped to a mattress. Soon after, Fred raped her. To make matters even more of a twisted, sick, unimaginable nature, her mother told her that all women go through this. It is the father's job, even laughing at how she walked to the bathroom afterward. She was prostituted later in life by Rose, even taking liberty sexually assaulting her herself and presenting her to Fred for him to rape during household chores. The unwaking nightmare this innocent child endured is something even I can't repeat without getting sick. Abuses, assaults, sexual manipulation, sodomy forced abortions and rapes were commonplace in the West household, and evidence of it all was mostly carefully concealed or explained away, that is, until Heather West. She had been a bit different from her siblings in that she exhibited noticeable psychological distress instead of hiding it and displayed various bruising and marks left by her parents. On one occasion, her close friend was told by Heather that her mother called her a bitch, unworthy of love, and repeatedly hit her showing her welts. When Heather left school in 1986, she had applied to a cleaning agency and was rejected telling May and Stephen while crying. Nothing more came of it in the next day. After Heather's siblings came back to school, Fred and Mary told them she had accepted a job and left. The initial problem is what May and Stephen knew what rose had told her neighbor about her running away not to mention conflicting stories from fred about her being involved in credit card fraud and her eloping with a lesbian they even faked calls from heather by an acquaintance to assure their kids of her being alive and well in the years following fred joked to the kids that if they didn't behave that they would end up under the patio with heather soon after he built a bench over the spot where she was indeed buried and kept a barbecue pit nearby for family functions it didn't take long for authorities to realize that they were being taken for fools about heather's whereabouts and executed a search warrant for their home with excavations of the property taking place in 1994. multiple bodies were discovered in the garden of the west home including heather's body which was found underneath the patio Fred insisted that Rose had no knowledge of the murders, but authorities didn't buy that for a second rose was initially charged with the rape of her daughter among other equally grotesque offenses but was later charged jointly with fred in five counts of murder during interviews rose repeatedly claimed her innocence with fred fessing up to more than five murders in exchange for leniency on his wife fred was later placed on suicide watch that lasted a few weeks until the supervision was lifted and shortly after was found hanging in his cell with a suicide note, with a picture of a gravestone, and words that should go on his epitaph. Rose was a different story altogether, and that she seemed to show no remorse since she denied everything she was charged with even as her children were languishing in foster care. She seemed humorous at times on the stand, and other times crocodile tears flowed. Her defense team claimed she was a victim of child abuse, and her husband had committed the murders, not her. Despite her playing the clueless housewife and seemingly ignorant to the killings, the jury unanimously found her guilty on all counts despite her not being directly linked to any of her husband's victims. She is serving a life sentence without parole in Newhall Prison and, to this day, still professes her innocence. As for the children, they all have new identities, new lives, with the exception of Mae West, who has made it her mission to find closure for the victim's families. One victim in particular, Mary Bastolm, has not been found and fears her mom may never divulge the secrets to her final resting place. In May of 2021, police had begun digging underneath a cafe half a mile from the West Home where Bastolm worked and where Fred was contracted to do building work at one point, and believes her mother is hiding details divulged by Fred as to where she actually is fearing that Bastolm was his first victim. May also had a daunting task, getting past the stigma of being the daughter of her very notorious serial killer parents, and has no further leads now that her dad is dead and hasn't spoken to her mother in 12 years. May stated that she definitely wants Mary Bastlm's family to have closure. It's just so difficult that it all can't be sorted out in one go. I would definitely want closure for her family, May has stated. When asked if she thought her mother would give information about Basil's murder, May said she won't. I think her murder was before they were married, but how do I know what they discussed? She never said anything. I don't know how she would have known because my mom would have been 15 when Mary disappeared. That's not to say that they didn't speak about it between them. Despite suffering sexual abuse and knowing her sister and stepsister were murdered by her parents, May kept in touch with her mother for 10 years after she was jailed, but cut ties after Rose refused to reveal the truth about her crimes. Nowadays, she says she lives a different life, where she hides her horrific past from friends, colleagues, and family under a new name. Now married with children and living a different life, her decision to come out as her old identity to give another family closure gave her an initial sense of anxiety and fear but a sense of purpose to try and right a horrible wrong by her twisted parents. When learning that her mother was sick, she said that she'll probably read about her death before ever hearing about it from officials, since she is no longer on her mother's visitor list. Her real concern at this point is that the clock is ticking for her mother to divulge any additional information as to the whereabouts of Mary Bastolm. As of writing this, cadaver dogs have pointed to possible remains with further digging expected to continue soon. The strength and sheer will of May to take on this monumental weight after going through years of psychological and physical trauma is staggeringly inspiring and should be commended. Her parents, however, deserve to be forgotten, thrown to the deepest chasm the earth can provide, and erased from the thoughts of mankind. Many of you are familiar with our next entry, but I'm sure few of you are aware just how many additional lives he has damaged during his kill spree. Keith Jesperson, aka the Happy Face Killer, is responsible for the deaths of eight women in the late 1990s. He earned the nickname because his letters to media and authorities ended with a drawing of a happy face. He was known to target sex workers and transients by strangling them, which is what he used to do to small animals, as a child. Keith was born into a dysfunctional family with his father and grandfather being raging alcoholics with violent tendencies. Coupled with relentless teasing from neighborhood children due to being overweight, he turned to torturing and killing small animals to let out his frustrations. Later when he moved to Washington State, his brothers continued to taunt him, calling him Igor, and other cruel names that followed him around for years. He was often beat by his father for acting out and at one point received an electric shock. As he got older, he pitted animals against each other watching them hurt and kill each other. His animals of choice were mostly cats and dogs often strangling them. Sometimes his father would smile and be proud of him for doing so. It was around this time that Keith claimed he had thoughts about what it would feel like to do the same to humans. His first attempt came at the age of 10 with his friend Martin, who was never blamed for anything and instead, the blame was passed to Keith. This resulted in a violent attack with Keith later stating he fully intended on killing Martin. A year later, he and another boy were swimming in a local lake. Keith was held underwater by the other boy until he almost blacked out, causing Keith to fly into a rage, attempting to drown him, but a lifeguard pulled him off. Throughout his life, Keith suffered more than most children including an alleged rape, but he pushed through eventually marrying at 20 to Rose Huck with whom he had three children with and supported them by becoming a truck driver. Their marriage had its ups and downs, but finally came to a head when Huck began to suspect infidelity after various women called at all hours. After 14 years, while Keith was on the road, she packed up the car and took their kids to Spokane. He still spent time with his children while both parents were separated until finally divorcing in 1990. Keith then tried to join the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, but he suffered an injury that had him go back to truck driving. As it turns out, this profession afforded him more opportunities to commit his murders. Keith's victims spanned all over the U.S. from Washington where he lived to clear across the country to Florida. His first known murder was Tonja, Bennett in Portland, Oregon. They met at a bar, got into an argument in a rented room, and was strangled. In 1992, in Blythe, California, Keith raped and killed a Jane Doe he referred to as Claudia. No less than a month later, in Turlock, California, Keith strangled Cynthia Lynn Rose. In November of 92, Keith struck again, this time in Salem, Oregon. The victim named Lori Ann Penton, who was a sex worker, who won a double the fee for her services. Keith got angry and strangled her when she threatened to call the police. The following year, Keith killed a woman named Patricia Skipple in San Anella California, who died from a drug overdose administered by Keith. His next murder didn't come until the next year in Crestview, Florida, who he referred to only as Susan. It wasn't until March 30th of 1995 that Keith was arrested for the murder of Julie Winningham. Keith attempted two suicide attempts to induce sentence leniency before his arrest. He wrote his brother detailing eight murders he committed in the past five years, even after he admitted to authorities to having committed more, but later recanted over 185 murder claims. Keith was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences for the murders and later charged with two other murders, tacking on another life sentence. He is currently incarcerated at Oregon State Penitentiary. Now that you know the backstory, We get to his daughter, Melissa Moore, that spoke up about her upbringing with her father. Oddly enough, she had only happy memories of him. He helped her learn to ride a bike, go on picnics, attend her school functions. At no point did she even suspect that her dad was capable of becoming the Happy Face Killer. Melissa is the oldest of her siblings and always looked forward to when her dad, a long-haul truck driver, would come home from a trip. She said that the first thing I would do when he got out of the car is I would run up to him and go for his pockets with the change that he had left over from the day and I got to keep the change. She knew he was a great father, but one dark day still haunts her. She was just a young girl when she saw her father torture animals. I found some little kittens. He grabbed them by the tail and hung them on the clothesline. Frightened, she ran inside to get her mother, Rose Huck, but by the time she came back, it was too late. I remember bending down and seeing that they were dead. Aside from having ideas that her father was a textbook sociopath later in life and commented that family outings could quickly turn dark and grotesque with her father mentioning that he could kill someone and get away with it. Melissa had in her mind that her father got the idea out of detective comics and brushed it away not knowing the full extent of his statement. After the murders came to light and the initial arrest, Melissa and her mother attempted to bury it and put it all out of their mind, but it remained in the public long after her father was sentenced, and Moore finding about what he had truly done became more apparent. She decided to keep her identity a secret, marrying at 21 to Sam Moore, producing two children. She eventually revealed who her dad was, and it turned out her husband didn't care. What worries her is that her son would have similar sociopathic traits, her father has, but after DNA testing, there appeared to be no genetic link. Just as Moore was settling into a normal life with her new family, letters from her father began arriving, asking her to visit him in prison. After talking it over with her husband, she decided to take the family to visit her father. Melissa stated, I was kind of curious to see if he would look like what I remembered him looking like, or would I see him as a convicted serial killer. They were told there was a family center, and a couple expected to meet with a serial killer one at a time while the children waited in the security room of a daycare facility. But the visit was nothing like what they expected. The inmates were free to visit with their families in the children's center of the prison, and the meeting wasn't what Keith had dreamed about either. Keith exclaimed, it was very uncomfortable. The last time i had seen my daughter she was 15 years old and all of a sudden 10 years later she shows up and she's a mother and has a husband i would never met before melissa states that she didn't want to talk about the crimes and didn't want to bring up any attention that he was really a convicted serial killer at that moment she just wanted to talk to her dad over time she decided to distance herself from her father her children didn't remember anything about the visit and it wasn't until the first grade that her daughter asked about her dad Not knowing how to respond, she researched how to approach this topic and ended up contacting Dr. Phil in 2008, asking him if she did the right thing, keeping the secret and cutting contact. Shattered Silence, the untold story of the serial killer's daughter, was a culmination of support she received from people all over the country after her Dr. Phil appearance and gave her a sense of healing to come forth with everything she kept from herself and others. Is a collection of journal entries about decades of observations about her family and, more importantly, her feelings and experiences regarding her dad. Today, she travels the country sharing her experiences with others in hopes that those with similar experiences can heal or look for potential warning signs in their own families and how to handle it. The courage to step out of the shadows and face evil head-on is incredible, and even more so when it is your own blood. I honestly don't know if I could have done it even as direct as I am with others. I continue to be amazed by the spirit of some individuals. When you hear Green River Killer, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and for good reason because he is one of America's most wretched serial killers. Born in Utah, Gary Leon Ridgway grew up in an unstable home with two other siblings. His mother was domineering and his father was a bus driver who often complained about sex workers. During his childhood, Gary would wet his bed and his mother would clean his genitals. He admitted later that he had conflicting sexual fantasies about his mother and killing her. When he was a teen, he was teased for being dyslexic and as a form of revenge, led a boy into the woods, stabbing him through his ribs and into his liver. The boy survived with no charges being filed. As an adult, Gary married at the age of 19 and joined the Navy. Shortly thereafter, he was deployed to Vietnam where he saw combat. It was here that he frequently had sex with Vietnamese prostitutes, eventually contracting gonorrhea. Finding out about this led to his marriage ending after a year. After returning home, Gary married again, this time becoming a born again Christian. Although he was somewhat violent with his wife, he spent most of his time spreading the word of God door to door. Despite this, It seemed like a cover based on his deviant nature of having sex with local hookers, even attempting to get his ex-wives and girlfriends to participate in public sex acts with them in places that would later be the final resting places of some of Gary's victims. Gary's constant sexual appetite in marriages apparently only produced one son, who was born in 1975 to his second wife. It wasn't until around 1982 that Gary started his killing spree. It is reported that he killed around 71 runaways and sex workers, but he had stated more than once that the number was much higher. He would lure them into his truck, homes, or secluded area, perform sex acts, and then strangle them. Most of the bodies were dumped near the Green River, Seattle Tacoma Airport, or other areas in King County. Gary confessed that he would sometimes have sex with the bodies, later stating that it repressed his urge to find a fresh victim, thereby reducing his exposure getting caught. Profilers attempted to piece together who the Green River Killer was, even interviewing Ted Bundy, who theorized that he was having sex with his deceased victims. No one had any hard evidence against Gary, even though he became a suspect in 1983, after being arrested in 1982 on prostitution charges, but passed a polygraph test and again in 2001 on a similar charge. He married his third wife, Judith Mawson, in 1988 and later said his kill rate declined dramatically because he truly loved Judith. It wasn't until 2001 that Gary was arrested at a paint spray shop on suspicion of the murders after DNA evidence was collected in 1987 connecting him to at least four women. During his trial he entered a plea confessing to 48 of the murders and part of his plea was he would lead authorities to the locations of the women to avoid execution. After holding up his end of the bargain Gary was sentenced to a staggering 48 life sentences with no possibility of parole and another life sentence to be served consecutively. The judge later added 10 years per victim for tampering with evidence in the victim's murder, adding up to an astonishing 480 years. Gary confessed to more murders than any other serial killer in American history. There are audio tapes of him in prison being interviewed showcasing how cold and calculated he is, saying that killing women was his career and hated them for what they did. He is currently serving as multiple sentences in Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla. Now most relatives on this list were either suspicious or partially aware that something was off with their parent or parents but not Matthew Ridgway, Gary's only child. He remembers his father being doting, kind, and gentle, never displaying any hostility or dark tendencies. When he was younger, Matthew Ridgway said he thought his father was just one of 500 possible suspects in the killings. I think that's how I related, it, Matthew said in 2001, that he's just one of the guys that happened to be one place and you know, he's my dad. He didn't do it. The horror of what his dad didn't hit home until much later when it was revealed that Gary would take Matthew to places where some of his victims were nearby and had been shown his picture to get his victims to be more trusting, adding to the sickening reality of it all. Gary attempted to be a father to Matthew despite the divorces and constantly not being around and apparently never mentioned prostitutes or anything out of the ordinary while out camping or other activities. When his mother informed him of the investigation, she instructed Matthew to simply say no comment to the media. As of this recording, it is not known if Gary's son is in contact with him or if they have any connection at all. Being a parent can be a constant battle between yourself and determining what is right for your children. That being said, Gary Ridgway would have been better off excusing himself completely from his son's life to spare him any further pain, mental trauma, or notoriety that will surely follow him the rest of his days. Murderers that come in pairs are often much more malicious and dangerous than one taker of life. This next entry is no different. Michael Bear and Susan Carson are a match made in the seventh circle of hell. The former grew up in Arizona, with his first wife divorcing him after noticing bizarre changes in his behavior. She and her daughter left moving out of state. Soon after, Michael began seeing Susan Barnes, a divorcee with two teenage sons, The two became involved with illicit drugs and mysticism, with Michael and Susan taking on the name Bear as their last name, claiming God has bestowed it on them. After backpacking around Europe for a year with the family, they moved to San Francisco to continue their illicit drug use and immerse themselves in the neo-hippie counterculture. Michael's behavior became too unpredictable and erratic for his ex-wife feared him and moved multiple times to avoid being contacted by him or mutual acquaintances. In March 1981, 23-year-old Karen Barnes was found dead in the Carsons' home. She had been stabbed multiple times with her head crushed before being wrapped in a blanket and hidden in the basement. Authorities suspected she was killed by someone she knew, making the Carsons the prime suspects, but the family had already moved and disappeared by the time the body was found. Michael and Susan later confessed that they had killed her because they thought she was a witch. The family lived in a secluded mountain area near Grants Pass, Oregon, and then in Alder Point, California, where they worked on a marijuana farm. Workers claimed that Michael and Susan were very odd and advocated revolution, saying nuclear war was imminent. On the same farm in the same year in May, they shot and killed farm worker Clark Stevens over a dispute. They tried burying the body to dispose of it and burying the remains under chicken fertilizer. The family soon fled again with authorities hot on their trail but having difficulty tracking them down, but a manifesto was found including detailed instructions on plans to assassinate President Ronald Reagan. In November of 82, Michael was arrested in Los Angeles for hitchhiking, but due to an error, he was released leaving evidence behind such as a gun, a mugshot, and address. The following year, the family was hitchhiking again, this time near Bakersfield, California, and were picked up by motorist John Helyar on his way to Santa Rosa. Susan soon lost it and accused John of being a witch, leading to the car being pulled over and a verbal altercation, which then turned physical, occurred between the three. Susan stabbed John while he and Michael wrestled with a gun. Michael gained the upper hand, shooting John dead in view of a passing motorist, which then called the police. Soon after, they were involved in a high-speed chase, which then resulted in the Carsons crashing Helyar's car, leading to their arrest. In June 1984, both were found guilty of Barnes's murder, and each was sentenced to 25 years. 50 years and 75 years were subsequently added to their sentences when evidence linked them to the murders of Stevens and Hellyar. Michael is incarcerated at Mule Creek, and Susan is incarcerated at Central California Women's Facility. The media labeled them the San Francisco Witch Killers, and it is theorized that they killed a handful of others while overseas. Now, not much is known about Susan's teenage sons and where they are today. But Michael Carson's daughter Jennifer from his first marriage has quite a lot to say. She saw things change a lot over the years. She explained that Susan was living this posh country club lifestyle before she started using LSD and got involved with my father. And that her dad was actually very normal. She states that Susan held a lot of influence over him and that he was a nice Jewish man. But if he had fallen in love with a televangelist, he would become one. If she had joined ISIS, he would have. He was that much of a follower. He was drawn to extremists and people he found really exciting. She didn't know the extent of their depravity, but one time she asked Susan to rub her back. But Susan became aggressive, claiming that she knew there was a demon inside of her, and she needed to remove it, and that she can fool her father, but not her. When Susan was eligible for parole in 2015, she fought to keep her locked away and still continues to make sure that she never gets out. It is not known if she has any contact with her father at this time. Step parenting can be a very delicate balancing act of emotions, especially after a bitter divorce or custody battle. But going to the extremes to reinvent yourself by falling in with an insane person should never be your next move. If every murderer was the same, it would get a bit dull for the media and for morbid seekers like you or I. Of course, the term serial killer is a relatively new term that was coined in the 70s, and this last entry showcases a man that was definitely in the midst of what I call the bloody renaissance of the 20th century, with his story possessing an interesting, albeit warped, slant to it. Edward Wayne Edwards had an upbringing that those never adopted or orphaned at a young age can probably relate to, since during the 50s, ethical oversight and reporting was not exactly very well documented or taken seriously. In the case of Edward, he was emotionally and physically abused by nuns under his care in the orphanage he resided in. When he came of age, he enlisted in the Marines, but he went AWOL or absent without leave and was dishonorably discharged. Afterwards, he worked odd jobs such as a dock worker or handyman. In 1955, he was arrested in Akron, Ohio, but escaped and turned to drifting around the country robbing gas stations to survive. He stated that he never disguised himself because he wanted to get famous, and he got his wish being placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted list in 1961. In 1962, authorities finally apprehended him, and he spent five years in Leavenworth getting paroled in 1967. While incarcerated, He befriended a guard who helped reform him, and after being released, he got married and became a motivational speaker. Edwards' story gets weirder. In 1972, he appeared on two television shows, To Tell the Truth and What's My Line, and he also wrote a book, an autobiography, titled The Metamorphosis of a Criminal, The True Life of Ed Edwards. All this mediocre fame and success would only last a decade as he had a hard time maintaining his newfound career and eventually returned to crime and served two years in Pennsylvania for arson. It was reported that he also committed identity fraud between the years of 1974 and 2009, according to his daughter, April, and had a false sense of superiority bordering on being a pathological liar, telling authorities that he had permission from J. Edgar Hoover to proceed with his book stating that he had said nothing bad about the fbi even mentioning that his new book would be showcasing criminals he had met while locked up including charles manson tony provenzo and jimmy hoffa the timeline of his personal life and killings are very fuzzy but the nearest anyone can tell is he committed his first murder in ohio in 1977 the victim being 21 year old william lavico And his 18 year old girlfriend judith straub their car was found abandoned in a field along with their bodies lying on the ground nearby they had been shot at point-blank range by a 20-gauge shotgun with very little of their heads remaining his next victims were another double homicide this time occurring in wisconsin in 1980 the victims named tim hack and Killy drew who were found stabbed and strangled in their home dubbed the sweetheart murders Edward was questioned with his own daughter tipping off the police to his possible involvement, but they had no basis to hold him and it wasn't until DNA testing became available that they could link him to their deaths. Edwards confessed to murdering his 25-year-old foster son Danny Edwards in Ohio. He had convinced Danny to go AWOL in order to collect insurance money worth $250,000 and lured him into the woods behind his house where he shot him twice in the face leaving him in a shallow grave where he was later discovered by a hunter. Other possible murders are said to be committed by Edwards but nothing substantial has come of them. Author Phil Stanford's book The Peyton Allen Files suggests that Edwards killed Beverly Allen and Larry Peyton in 1960 but authorities claim they arrested two suspects that were later released and are confident they got the right individuals. Further still, In 2017, Detective Chad Garcia of the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office, who was in charge of the sweetheart murders, is convinced Edwards was responsible for at least six or seven more murders in the area, and is less convinced that he was a lot less sure that he was involved in some of the unsolved Zodiac killings, and a few officials believe he was also involved in the disappearance of John JonBenet Ramsey and the death of Teresa Halbach, the main focus of Netflix's Making of a Murderer docuseries. Most of these theories will never go further than that since, in 2011, Edwards died of natural causes at the Medical Detention Center in Ohio, just four months before his execution by lethal injection was scheduled. Not much was ever uttered about any women he was with or children he fathered, known or unknown. But his most outspoken relative who has already been briefly discussed, April Belaschio, has quite a lot to say about her late sadistic father. She stated that they were always moving around in secret because people were out to hurt him. Belaschio described him as hard to deal with at times, a Jekyll and Hyde persona. He could be very good with us kids. He was sociable, charming. But he could also be abusive. When he was abusive, it was hell. In March 2009, she felt an urge to check out cold cases in the areas she lived as a child. While reading about a few cases in Wisconsin, she recognized a place called the Concord House, a wedding venue in Wisconsin where her father had been a handyman when he lived in the area. She realized the case, dubbed the sweetheart murders after a young couple who attended a wedding reception at the Concord House were murdered directly after, seemed very familiar. Lascio instantly knew her father was responsible I was shaking. I was shaking because immediately I knew who it was that committed the murder, she said. Evidently, Edwards had taken the family to the park where the couple's bodies were found the day after their visit. The next day I knew there were ambulances and sirens everywhere. He'd taken us to where their dead bodies were. Velasquez shared her findings with police and several months later, Edwards was arrested and confessed to four murders. Velasquez knows she made the right decision, but is still racked with guilt. I live with two kinds of guilt. Not reporting him sooner and possibly saving lives, and the guilt of turning in my own father. They're both strong. April, now a mother of three grown children, has told her story on multiple news platforms including People Magazine, and I encourage you to seek out more of her story. Children know more than you think, and notice small details when you think they're not paying attention. The innocence and nativity is there, but their memory is long, deep. And winding. Keep that in mind if you intend on taking them on a cerebral ride of your own horrifying ways, lest they decide to turn on you, and your past evil misdeeds become your undoing. And so at last, we have reached the end of the first part of our grisly stroll down this broken down, fractured road. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed narrating. Part 2 of this segment will be uploaded next month. Be sure you go on Spotify and rate this program and do the same on all other platforms such as Radio Public, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. More platforms will become available soon. Until next time, be safe and stay curious.